This episode of the Asia Rising podcast was recorded in front of a live Zoom audience. To find out more about our upcoming events, where you can listen in and even ask a question yourself, go to latrobe.edu.au forward slash Asia. Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from Latrobe Asia, where we discuss news, views and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. The mass internment of Uyghurs and other indigenous groups in China was first reported in 2017. There is now a rich body of literature documenting recent human rights abuses in the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region. However, there is little knowledge of the actual perpetrators inside China's vast and opaque party state system. A report published by the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, ASPI, maps and analyzes the governance mechanisms employed by the China Party state in Xinjiang. While the international debate continues as to whether the recent events in Xinjiang constitute genocide, this report gathers the relevant evidence before it can be covered up and makes it publicly available. Joining me to discuss the administrative paper trail is two authors of the report, Professor James Leibold, Head of the Department of Politics, Media and Philosophy at La Trobe University. Thank you for joining me, James. Nice to be with you, Matt, once again. And Daria Impiambato, researcher at ASPE's International Cyber Policy Centre. Thanks for having me. The report was also co-authored with Vicky Zhu. You have both authored a number of reports looking at the Uyghur situation in Xinjiang. So at what point did you look at all the information that you were gathering and going, we really need to lay out a kind of workflow chart to work out who's been reporting to who, which area is responsible for what, and wow, isn't it strange that this area is doing that? Is that an accurate assessment of how this might have come about? Yeah, it was a mammoth. Uh, projects, probably about a year in the making. It's a part of um, a, a larger research project called the Xinjiang Data Project that was established by the Australian Strategic Policy Institute in early 2020 to provide new empirical-led research on the human rights abuses occurring in the Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region in Western China. In some of the previous research we've done, and all of it is kind of, as I said, using publicly available Chinese language sources, but we've looked at in the past um, the issue of uh, Uyghur forced labor in international supply chains. We've looked at China's program of biometric surveillance, the systematic destruction of Uyghur mosques, tombs, and pilgrimage sites, as well as the crackdown on indigenous birthrights. And we've also been using satellite imagery analysis to track detention facilities in Xinjiang. This project, in particular, the architecture of repression, really began with a pretty simple question that lead author Vicky Shu posed to us uh, back in early part of this year, is that who was actually running these uh, detention facilities? But it really evolved into a far more complex story about actually how the camps are being run, and more broadly about how Xinjiang is being governed by the Chinese Communist Party under Xi Jinping. We certainly know a lot about what is happening in Xinjiang due to international media coverage, as well as reports by NGOs and other research think tanks. We really don't know much about how it is happening and by whom, who are the key actors, both in terms of individuals, as well as um, party and state agencies. Uh, so in order to go to try to answer that question, we really interrogated literally thousands of Chinese language source materials, including leaked police files to really illustrate the key players as well as the, the key bureaucratic organs uh, involved in, in what we call the, the architect of repression. 
what sort of information were you putting into this spreadsheet then? Where does it, spreadsheet's the wrong way to put it. It's a flow chart. Where did it initially start and what sort of links were you looking for? Yeah, well, I think Daria really uh, probably can answer that question better than me. It really started with a bunch of posty notes, right? Yes, it started in Vicky's wall <laughs> um, <laughs> with a bunch of post-it notes. But then we sort of started collecting the names of these party and state organs as we were researching. And first we chucked them in a Google Doc, but then it soon became clear that it would have been impossible to just give a full idea of how complex the system was without visualizing it in in some way because like the picture became way wider and more intricate than we could have predicted Um, so that's why we started testing a few graphic tools we tried to make the information a bit more compact and digestible on our website there were a lot of pieces of this vast bureaucracy that were often missing or misunderstood. So we added, you know, descriptions to each and every single one of them and tried to also give a bit of information on the party speak terms. And we've created tools that basically take you through the map, explaining how it works in sort of the various policy areas of the, the two repressive campaigns that we've dealt with in the report. Yeah, so basically once we collected all the names, we we had to figure out where the place of these boxes was in the bureaucracy, and we've created a sort of top-to-bottom hierarchy system that has both party and state organs in it. So in this chart, you've got 170 administrative entities that have participated in Xinjiang governance. So what have you learnt along the way as far as uh, who's involved and who's reporting to what? We've learned a lot in the process of doing it. I think there's a couple of key things that come out. The use of campaign-style governance is a big one, as well as the penetration of the party down to the grassroots level, the way in which the party has been weaponizing the legal system to carry out its policies, the way in which uh, the party mobilized uh, a kind of whole society response to implementing these policies. You know, campaign-style governance really goes back to the Maoist era, when it perceives there's a problem, whether it's poor sanitation, too many sparrows, or eradicating extremism in Xinjiang, it uh, mobilizes all of society to try to eliminate these problems uh, through a system of rewards, punishments, and targets. Uh, Now, during the Maoist era, it was about, you know, rounding up counter-revolutionaries and capitalist rotors and removing them from society and and putting them in large state-run detention facilities uh, where they would receive extrajudicial re-education through labor. The same thing is actually happening in Xinjiang uh, today. Uh, Xinjiang's bureaucratic uh, organs as well as ordinary citizens are really being mobilized to identify those who have been radicalized or perceived to be a threat to social stability, and then it's subjecting them to coercive processes of social rewiring. But there also are different, really important differences from the Maoist uh, era, During the 1960s, Mao really tried to mobilize the masses to circumvent the Chinese bureaucracy, believing that the bureaucracy was the problem. Uh, So he turned to the the masses to literally bombard the headquarters and destroy the four olds. In the case of uh, Xinjiang today and governance in China more broadly, Xi Jinping is really trying to weaponize the entire vast Chinese bureaucracy and legal system in order to strengthen the leadership of the Central Committee and himself as the kind of new Mao. 
in the name of uh, ideological uh, purification as well as um, cultural homogenization. Campaign-style governance has proved quite effective in China's past, but it also comes at enormous costs uh, in terms of human lives. And uh, there's the question of sort of how sustainable it is uh, that maybe we could turn to later. Mm. And did you find that there were strange links or presences of different governing bodies? Like I, I seem to remember reading in the report that the forestry division was in charge of a re-education camp, and that sort of thing is not really intuitive when I see it on paper, but yeah, did you find those sort of things? Yeah, some, um, Dario, I mean, do you want to jump in and tell us a little bit about the forestry bureau, I think it was in Kashgar City, is it? Yeah, I think that came from analysing a bunch of budget documents from different counties. Some budgets didn't really make sense. I don't think that necessarily means they were running the camps, but there were some expenses involved that were paid through the Forestry Bureau Department's budget. Mm. So I guess it just goes to show like how many resources had to go into these campaigns and that it needed what James just mentioned, like whole of government and whole of party mobilisation to make it happen. Was it an effort perhaps to obscure who is in charge of different areas or where funding is coming from or something like that to make it purposely more difficult to I trace? Mean, I, think, I think it's hard to answer that because all we have is the budget document says, you yeah, know, true. The, you the, can't the, really. <laughs> the, the Forestry Bureau paid for the, the, the expenses of the re-education camp for a single year. Mm. I think it, probably more a reflection of the chaos that accompanied this pretty sudden decision to take a radical approach of uh, interning possibly a million Uyghurs and other uh, Turkic-speaking Muslim minorities in Xinjiang. You know, everybody had to pitch in, government and party entities as well as individuals. And it didn't always work seamlessly. That's where a lot of the abuse of power comes from. Yeah. When you're trying to hit targets uh, to demonstrate whether you're a department or an individual that you are 100% behind this policy, you know, in the process of that, mistakes are made, people accidentally get interned that shouldn't be or arrested or detained. A tremendous amount of human suffering that accompanies that. Mm. Can I get a, an impression of the extent of this flowchart? So at the very top end of it, what have you got in, in the structure there? Yeah, so it, it goes all the way to the central party and government organs. Mm. And then it has four sections. The top one is central. Then we have Xinjiang regional level. And then we have county and prefecture level. And the lowest one is the township and village level, which, as we depict in the report, is where most of the things happen really in practical terms. Yeah. And then on the left side... There is there is some color coding, but we've tried to sort of divide it. There are party organs and on the right side in yellow, the government organs. But a lot of the times these, these lines are blurred. So the map looks separate. Uh, it was just really hard to show the way that it works. But in reality, the party leads over everything. Yeah. Was it important to you to start it at the top or to have that sort of top in place of this yeah, I mean, the, the, a lot of questions have been asked about who is behind this policy, right? So mm. there have been various theories out there. A lot of attention has been focused on Chen Chengguo, who was um, the party secretary, currently is the party secretary of Xinjiang, brought across in um, October of 2016. Others have suggested the head of the Political and Legal Affairs Commission, Zhu Hailun, that really was running the program. We also wanted to sort of look above the, the Xinjiang level at... Um, 
key organs at the central level that had taken a lead in designing Xinjiang policy. We suggest in the report that certainly the policy, here I'm talking about the mass internment policy, but we could also talk about the 2014 crackdown on terrorism. Both of them had the clear imprimata of the uh, Politburo Standing Committee and, of course, Xi Jinping himself. And so it's important, I think, kind of link that up to see how the broad directives come from Xi and the, the Central Committee and then are kind of filtered down uh, throughout the entire system. And as Dario is saying, you know, it goes across kind of party and government and military organs. So visually, it's useful to kind of uh, isolate them and have an understanding of each of their roles. But as Daria was pointing out, it's very messy and the lines are blurred and everyone was expected to kind of pitch in in order to implement this policy. Yeah. On the front of pitching in, I guess this gets down to the real community level, to the grassroots of who's executing these plans and, and who's responsible, I guess, to a certain extent. So how much did this involve the community? It sounds like when you say involve the community that this is a really worthwhile kind of civic activity to take part in. Was it in some ways viewed in this sort of way? It had to be. I don't think anyone would voluntarily take part in these activities, but I think what was really interesting for us to look at was the propaganda apparatus and how that is run in in Xinjiang. Obviously, there is propaganda across the nation in China, but the way that it is run in Xinjiang was focused in particular on the minority populations and focused on eradicating these so-called roots of extremism. We've found that Xinjiang's propaganda policy have included uh, specific things like public loyalty pledges that were made in public squares or, or schools or, you know, sports stadium or propaganda lectures that literally penetrated every single aspect of people's life. They would have to hear these lectures at work or in, in prisons or in schools everywhere. They were made to chant, uh, wishing Xi Jinping good health, and they were made to do compulsory public denunciation sessions calling out what they call extremists or two-faced people. It does look like it becomes a society-wide effort, but there was no choice in taking part in these activities. Mm. So the org chart that you've released doesn't name officials specifically, but you must have come across a number of people uh, while you were researching this report, and you could have put specifics in there, I imagine. So what can you tell us about the people and the way they are working? We do mention a few key people on our chart, such as Xinjiang Party Secretary Chen Chengwad, James has mentioned, and others who have led the policy making behind the two campaigns. Mm. But it, it would have been physically impossible to include all of the names that we found in the chart. So we do have a few appendices that are not yet available to the wider public at the moment. But so in these appendices, we've collected literally hundreds of party and government officials' names, especially at the county level. And the specific intent of this was to, to keep a record of it before it was scraped from the internet. We've also found some very interesting case studies of county party secretaries that I think Vicky, our lead author, she, she did an amazing job at portraying them and their personalities and sort of putting a human face to the broader issue. These people are giving and taking orders and they may really make the 
campaigns possible. The section is called Frontline Commanders, and it profiles individuals like Yao Ning, who is the party secretary of uh, Marabashi County in Xinjiang. He went to two of the most prestigious universities in the world, Tsinghua in China and Harvard. And despite that, he enthusiastically took on a role whose duties are likely to have included ultimate responsibilities for the operations of the re-education camps. Mm. But there, there are also other examples, like the one of a Uyghur official who became model minority leader and one of the most active propagandists for the party in the region. So effective that the regional party committee launched several propaganda campaigns named after this county party secretary and so that his fellow Uyghurs could learn from him. Yeah, we're really trying to put a human face, as Daria said, uh, on um, the officials, both Uyghurs and Han, who were involved in persecuting CCP policy in Xinjiang. And we try to do that by a couple of bio sketches, but as well to gather up empirically the data on who were in positions of authority from 2014 until present. And that was a really arduous task, um, uh, you know, kind of trolling through publicly available bios to try to identify who these officials were, what their minzu or ethnicity was, uh, how long they served in those roles, to try to get a sense of what is the composition of the Qatar workforce in Xinjiang. And one of the things we provide is a bit of analysis to suggest that um, despite the fact that the Xinjiang is a, formerly a Uyghur autonomous region, there's not currently a single Uyghur at the party secretary level of a county government. So the county governments are really the coalface party organs that really prosecuted CCP policy in Xinjiang, and they're really dominated by Han Chinese, there are a few other ethnic minorities, to kind of demonstrate the way in which the promise of autonomy, allowing Uyghurs and other minorities to be masters of their own home has really been slowly kind of scaled back and and in the case of Xinjiang, almost completely eroded so that the Uyghurs really, other than professing loyalty to the party state and going through the motions, they possess very little real power. Mm. You also uh, had, as an information source, a large amount of leaked police files. And what struck me about these was the amount of detail that you got about the amount of surveillance that the Uyghur community was under. Can you take me through that yeah. a bit? It's a real treasure trove that um, I have to say we'd be really discussing the, the tip of the iceberg on. So it's a 52 gigabyte of confidential uh, police department reports from the regional capital of Urumqi that were somehow leaked in 2019 and um, ended up in the hands of the Intercept magazine. And in, in turn, they've provided us and some other researchers with access took a long time to kind of even piece it together. But one of the most valuable pieces of that database, uh, at least the one that we used the most, was um, almost daily, in some case monthly, police dispatches that would talk about their jurisdiction and what they're doing as a part of this campaign to ensure stability in Xinjiang. And there we really see the strengthening of what the party calls grassroots governance at the neighborhood and the village committee meaning that really the party sought to identify any potential troublemakers in their jurisdiction. Everybody's looking after their own little jurisdiction and then literally watch them, you know, in some cases every day and in other cases to detain them and, or sent them off to be re-educated. In the, the report, we tell the story of a, a then 19-year-old Uyghur man 
Anit Abliz, who was sent off to a re-education camp in 2018 because he had had a file-sharing app on his phone that he used to download uh, music the year before. He was eventually sentenced after uh, serving uh, over a year in re-education to three years of formal imprisonment. But what is interesting about his case is uh, what the police records tell us is they were equally concerned about his family. They monitored the family very closely and, and, you know, almost visiting them on a daily basis. They would send a group of officials, sometimes police officers, sometimes community officers, who would go to the home, knock on the door, check everyone was there, look at the state of the physical belongings in the house, talk with his uh, father and his, his mother and his brother, and observe their emotions, mm. and then report all this back in quite a, a detailed way. Uh, so this is that really grassroots uh, surveillance that, you know, there's a lot been made of the way in which the party's turning towards automated forms of surveillance, and that's certainly the case. I mean, he was flagged through uh, an automated system that uh, had identified that he had used this file-sharing app, but most of the surveillance in Xinjiang uh, today is still done through human surveillance. It's people watching over other people. Mm. And in this case, it's Han watching over uh, Uyghurs. So the, the officials, the community officials were, were Han Chinese and they were sent on a, as I said, a nearly daily basis to keep an eye on his family. Yeah, yeah. It must take a lot of resources to effectively continue such an intense and involved campaign. So do you get a sense of how widespread this maintenance is and how sustainable you think it is. I'm, I'm kind of looking here for your own personal sense here. I know this is something that the data isn't necessarily going to tell you. Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. It's like, if you go back and look at campaigns, political campaigns, historically, um, they have tended uh, to peter out after three to five years, largely through exhaustion. You know, this intense mobilization of um, the bureaucracy in society, you know, uh, generates, you know, a lot of exhaustion both perpetuating the policy as well as those in, enduring it. Quite possible in the case of Xinjiang, we see, at least overtly, that society is sort of returning to some semblance of normality. People who had been detained in re-education camps have either been released into a course of labor assignments or returned to their community, or in the case of those who cannot be uh, redeemed, been formally sentenced through the legal system. I feel like the priority, particularly not this year, this is a big year with the Olympics and the 20th Party Congress, but I suspect whoever succeeds uh, Chen Chengguo at the uh, 20th Party Congress is going to come in with a mandate to focus on the economy, to, to normalize life in Xinjiang. This doesn't mean that the party is going to ease up on surveillance, not going to ease up on its obsession with stability but it's going to try to move into that next phase where a lot of these processes of surveillance and education and propaganda are going to be kind of normalized, a normal part of daily life, but with also a focus on ensuring that the economy can continue to function. I don't know if you've got any thoughts on that, Daria. Yeah, I think one of the things that we've been looking more closely lately is also this massive information operation to portray Xinjiang in a different way. It was directed, I think, to domestic audiences primarily, but it is spilling over towards you know, foreign countries to just make sure that people have the official narrative of the party on Xinjiang, which is a beautiful land, like many of their 
campaigns say on social media and you know across all the state media. Uh, so I think that that really shows how a lot of effort is now being put into making people believe that whatever happened is gone and everything is is okay and all the minorities in Xinjiang are happy happily dancing in the streets. It sounds like there's a, a hope that this problem would just go away. Is that the sense that you get from some of the Western countries that it won't need to come to any sort of intervention, that it'll be the sort of thing that resolves itself? That sounds like the trajectory it's on from what you're both saying. Well, if you're talking about the international response, there's a handful of countries in the liberal democratic West that have really made a big deal out of this. It's really become a uh, an important issue human rights-wise as well as uh, concerns about uh, where China's headed more widely. But the vast majority of countries outside that small minority have either directly come out and supported China's policies in Xinjiang or have largely remained silent on mm. it. Um, I mean, I, I feel like the global community is quite divided on China at, at present. It's hard to know where that confrontation between the West and China will take us. <laughs> Got concerns about some of the possibilities of heading towards some, some type of conflict. I also worry that people have been concerned about Xinjiang for maybe the wrong reasons, um, less concerned about what's happening there to the Uyghurs and other Turkic minorities, but rather uh, as an issue where they believe that China is vulnerable mm. to public and international criticism. For us at the Xinjiang Data Project, it's always been about documenting what is occurring there. We do make some recommendations for policymakers, but um, really we want to lead with the research. Yeah. Uh, we spend a tremendous amount of time digging through. We've got some really talented uh, researchers like Vicky and Daria that have fantastic Chinese language skills, but they also know how to find things on the Chinese internet. And that's a difficult kind of cat and mouse game. Because um, we've seen trying to get more sophisticated at trying to hide evidence, increasingly kind of scrubbing public records. And so we work very hard to, to find that stuff and then to archive it and then make it publicly available. Okay. Um, look, I've got one more question before we, we turn to the audience because we've got some great questions that have come in. Dario, this question is more a bit for you that I've got to finish up here. Uh, imagine you in particular must have an office wall or a bedroom wall somewhere that looks like a, a serial killer's plan. You've got post-it notes everywhere and intricate bits of string work connecting them from this place to that across the entire room. So how would you hope, ideally, that your work will be used I think the main point of the chart was that it would become a tool for any other researchers or anyone who's really interested in the topic to be able to use for, for a long time. It's also a screenshot in the, of this particular time, this particular era of Chinese bureaucracy, which I'm sure will change. It's really important to know how these campaigns were implemented and how they happened, even to just improve knowledge and understanding of the region, but also of the workings of the party state itself. It can help analyze other issues that are pertinent to China, mm. I think. In terms of all the rest, I think I put a lot of effort into redacting all the police files that James was talking about. They were leaked and then we were able to get access to them. We thought it was really important to make them available for everyone. And because they contain so much personal information, I've literally had to read and, and sort of redact out all this personal information from them. And they're now just on Document Cloud, so they can be found easily. And I hope that more people can make a use of them in their own research. 
Okay, uh, we've got some great questions here, so let's take some from the audience. The first one that we'll go to is from uh, Hossein Garavi. Good afternoon, and thank you for the opportunity. I'm interested to know why countries such as Iran, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, or the Organization of the Islamic Countries, they are sort of quiet about what's happening to the Uyghurs. It's pretty much very similar to what happened at the time when the Russians were destroying the Chechens. What, in your point of view, why there is such a sort of a silence? Yeah, this is a very good question, Hussein. I mean, I'm by no means an expert on those three countries that you named, but I suspect it's for two reasons, money and uh, lack of information. So all those countries, as do most countries, have very close economic relations with China and uh, political leaders at the top have a, uh, a reason to stay silent on this issue. They, they know it's a hot-button issue for the Chinese Communist Party. And as we well know here in Australia, if you speak out of turn, the party does have a range of coercive apparatuses that can you know, damage your economic relationship with China. Uh, the other side of it is the party state has put a tremendous amount of resources into getting their side of the story out through state media organs as well as through social media. We've been involved in a briefing both in Jordan and Kuwait on issues about what's happening in Xinjiang. And one of the things that came out in our discussions is the general lack of information, but it was also that counter-narrative about Xinjiang being this kind of happy paradise for uh, multi-ethnic groups comes out in the daily media of those two countries. We fool ourselves if we think that in some ways the concerns the West have are the majority view globally, because I don't think they are. All right. The next question that we'll take is from McComas Taylor. Thanks, Daria, and thanks, James. Many of these leaders are now of the generation who were born in the mid-50s, so they would remember the Cultural Revolution, and certainly their parents would remember the Cultural Revolution, and they must know at a deep level that thought reforms, Sushyang Gaigur and re-education actually don't work. People emerged from decades in imprisonment and thought reform are completely unreformed. So if they know that this actually doesn't work, why do they persist with it? That's a really good question. I'm not sure they uh, don't think it works. If we look at um, Xi Jinping or Zhu Hailun, who is the head of the political or was the head of the Political and Legal Affairs Commission, a really important organ in Xinjiang. Both of them uh, claim to have been re-educated and benefited from the experience, you know, Xi Jinping being sent down to the Cultural Revolution, to Shanxi, and Zhu Hailun to uh, Kashgar, to Xinjiang. Perhaps it's a bit of exaggeration, but they both claim that those experiences were quite transformative, allowed them to become closer to the masses, to better understand Xinjiang society in the case of Zhu Hailun. But I think you're right. I mean, if you go back and look at the historical scholarship, there's a fantastic book by Wang Ning called Banishment to the Northeast that talks about these reform through labor camps that were set up during the late 1950s and early 1960s and based on archival material and interviews. And that is her conclusion that people like that, some of them do try to reform themselves, they do actually believe in the process, but through the coercive nature of the process, become quite disillusioned and really high rates of suicide 
and death in these camps. But the other thing, just sort of one last point I'd make is we also need to remember that the process of re-education, whether it be in Xinjiang or in Mongolia, also occurs in the formal schooling system. I think the party state saw the setting up of these mass internment camps as a kind of remedial education campaign, you know, kind of trying to deal with those who didn't go through state schooling as currently envisioned. They are also putting tremendous resources in promoting Putonghua medium education, as well as patriotic education in the, the formal schooling system, and now even uh, Xi Jinping thought. Taken all together, I do think you can reshape people's thinking. Maybe not everyone's, but if you're uh, persistent enough, you can actually change the way people view society, I believe. Look, we've got a lot of good questions here. Let's just take one more question. This is from an anonymous attendee, so I'll read it out myself. This is to both of you. Have you experienced any negative repercussions due to the research you're doing? I'm wondering if certain people, organisations, authorities, etc., might have attempted to disrupt the work that you've been doing. Thank you very much. And uh, just as a sidebar, Latrobe Asia got quite a lot of emails from people who were very annoyed that we were engaging with Aspie on any front. So I imagine you guys would experience that tenfold, despite the fact that you are doing important and worthwhile research. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me, Matt. You, you go ahead, Daria. I was just going to say, I think Aspie does have a few security measures in place, but at the same time, it's almost unavoidable to just receive the usual trolling and angry emails. Twitter is an awful place. The truth is, it has been way harsher on on Vicky, and that we think it's probably due to the fact that she's Chinese and she's a woman as well. So that there are like compounding issues there that play against her. But I think you can sort of use that in your favor because it just means that our research is actually making an impact if it annoys so many people. I think we do need some mechanisms in place to preserve our mental health as we we do these things. Probably the biggest hurdles that I've personally met is just seeing someone online finally catching that piece of information and then having it suddenly deleted. We've lost so much that now we archive compulsively, like two to three times, download a PDF copy. You know, there's just not enough we can do to try and save this information. That's been really, really difficult to overcome. Mm. Yeah, and I would just add to that. I mean, it is through courageous people like Daria and Vicky that we're able to do this research. You know, they do take on a risk and are harassed online and in some cases physically. It is really difficult work to do. Aspie as an organization does have some protocols in place to look after the safety of their employees. With regards to the think tank more broadly, there's certainly some misperceptions about Aspie out there in the public. This uh, research, the Xinjiang Data Project, was um, funded by the U.S. State Department. We also received some funding from the Commonwealth Foreign Office and Development Office for this uh, project in particular. Uh, We're always completely transparent about where the money comes from and also maintain complete editorial control. So no one in any process of this research told us what to say, what to do, and was really led by a team of researchers who are concerned about the human rights abuses and really believe that facts uh, do speak truth to power. 
and are committed to digging that information out and making it publicly available so that we can continue to have that discussion. Mm. We don't expect everybody will agree. That's quite natural. But we hope people will engage with it on good faith. Yeah, yeah. And I suppose that level of transparency is important so that everything is out there for everyone to see, and not just in the matter of how you guys are functioning in research and as a unit, but also the information that you've had access to and can make available to the public that way so people can draw their own conclusions if they don't want to yeah, trust what exactly. you're saying. I mean, I how many footnotes do we got in this <laughs> last report? I don't know, my God, it almost killed us. All right, and on that note, uh, we might wrap it up. Uh, thank you very much both for coming along. Thanks, everyone, for your great questions. You've been listening to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe, Asia. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you may cast your pod please leave a review. They are always very appreciated. You can follow us all on Twitter. Daria is at Dari Imbriato. James is at Jay Leibold. And the podcast is at Latrobe Asia. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening. <laughs>